Hey, this is El Goro from the Talk Without Rhythm podcast, and you are listening to the Faculty of Horror. Good choice. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. And happy Halloween, everyone. It is October. It is getting crisper and crisper here in Toronto. The dollar stores are filled with amazing items that I always want to buy. And we are back with our very, very special Halloween episode on The Exorcist. <laughs> what? Andrea, what? What? You were just saying something. No, I wasn't. Uh, okay. Okay. You good? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. So welcome to our episode. We are so excited to talk about The Exorcist. What a huge film. What a tremendous film. This film actually defies a lot of what we've said about the horror genre up till now. As we'll talk about how, you know, Hollywood likes to take a safe bet. But this movie was anything but a safe bet in spite of the fact that it's an Academy Award-winning filmmaker, William Friedkin, who had won an Academy Award for his previous work, The French Connection, William Peter Blatty. This was a best-selling novel. So on the one hand, it was kind of a sure thing, but when you look at the film and you look at the risks it took and the rules it broke, it's really tremendous. And the film, in my opinion, stands on its own. There's been nothing like it ever since. Absolutely not. And it's still such a cultural touchstone. Actually, a few weeks ago, I went to see the new Johnny Depp movie, Black Mass, about Whitey Bulger and the kind of whole Boston crime syndicate. And there's a scene where one of the character's wives is like trying to get away from the mobsters that are having dinner in her house. And she's up in her bedroom and she's reading a book. And I was like, what's that book? She's reading it so intensely. And it was The Exorcist. No way. And it was just, yes, there are these like constant little touchstones of it's such a universal movie to the point where we still have so much to talk about today, but it is so emblematic of that period and that space of the early 70s. Obviously, this movie was a big part of that new Hollywood movement, which started with films like Easy Rider in like the late 60s, moving forward into the 70s. And it was really when the studio system was not quite working the way it used to, and they were having to try new things. Now, this movie is over 40 years old. At this point, and there is tremendous scholarship done on this film. There's academic scholarship done, there's a lot of film critique, and there is a huge wealth of resources available. We're going to touch on what we can. We're going to touch on the ways the films speak to us in the ways that the Faculty of Horror has been bringing you our opinions and analyses and readings, but there is so, so much out there that we can't possibly touch on everything, but we're going to post our course notes, as we always do, but we, as always, encourage our listeners, if you found a really cool article or something that's really interesting, let us know about it. I'll add it to the course notes, and we can get the conversation rolling. We love that. So one thing to mention off the bat about The Exorcist is that it is a very deeply personal film, as Andrea was just mentioning. It's one of those films that every time I watch it, I come away with something different. I see something different. I react to something differently. So we're really going off of that at this point in our lives and just having watched it. Now, I want to say off the bat that for me, I was raised by two lapsed Catholics, and I myself oscillate between being an agnostic and an atheist. But I do have a healthy respect for religion when it's used in a positive way to bring people together. And if that floats your boat, I'm so okay with that. And I think that's great. 
Yeah, I've mentioned in previous podcasts that I was raised Roman Catholic, and when you come out of that kind of childhood, and particularly if you get an extended education in sociology, it's very critical of religion as a means of control and manipulation. It's really indoctrinated to our children. Like, I had my first communion where little girls are dressed up like little brides of Christ, and it's messed up, and we're so young. And then your confirmation, which to me happened when I was in grade six. So I must have been about 12 years old and you have to make a solemn oath to be Catholic for the rest of your life. And it is way too young to make that kind of a statement, but it's designed to be that way. And it's hard to look back on that and not be critical. But at the same time, as I've gotten older and became an adult and learned more about people and met different kinds of people with different ways of life, my views on faith have changed a lot and I've been really challenged by it, especially recently because I find that religious intolerance is kind of in vogue right now. It's popular when it's actually kind of really outrageous that it should be because it is religious intolerance, even if it's aimed at one of the bigger religions of the world. And I've also come to realize as I've gotten older that the people I know who do practice some form of faith, and I'm not even talking about going to church, I'm talking about maybe prayer or charity or just something that helps them sleep at night, often it's people who are in recovery or people who have dealt with some serious heavy shit. And I kind of feel that if you are an atheist like me and Alex, it's almost a position of privilege. If you don't believe in God, it's because you never needed God to explain something so heavy or inexplicable or dark or something that's happened to you. And it comes up in this film. This film is all about how faith is the opposite of despair. And I found that to be a really significant part of the film and a really significant statement about religions. So while I do feel like this film contains a political agenda, at least on William Peter Blatty's part, he was definitely intending to scare Americans back into church when he wrote this book, and he's been very transparent about that. And we're going to talk about it a little further on in. But overall, I do feel like this film is a positive statement about God and about religion. So that is the standpoint that we are going to take when looking at the film. Now, when I first saw the film as a kid... The Exorcist was a quintessential horror film. It was a sleepover film if you wanted to scare the shit out of each other, which is kind of funny because everyone involved in the film insists it's not a horror film, but it is such a horror film. And you watch it as a kid and you're so freaked out by the frightening imagery, which still holds up beautifully. It looks amazing and it's scary as fuck. But as I grew older, it became less and less about those jump scares and those amazing special effects and more and more about these characters, particularly that of Chris. And as I'm coming into my 30s, as a young woman, I am not a mother, but if I was and something like that happened to me, holy crap, Ellen Burstyn's performance and her agony is so palpable. And I actually think that's the scariest part of the film at this point in my life. See, that's interesting because for me, this wasn't a sleepover film. I mean, I think I've talked a little bit on this podcast before of how horror for me, and I think for a lot of horror fans, especially when you're a kid, if you really, really love this genre, it's a very private thing. You can get away with watching some of them at sleepovers, but it, it ultimately for me was a very personal thing. I watched a lot of these movies on my own. Now, I didn't see the film until it got that big re-release in 2000, you know, the version you've never seen before, which added in the spider walk, a couple more bloody 
moments. I think some more moments of the Captain Howdy demon face. But more importantly, it added in the moment during the big exorcism at the end where the two fathers, Karis and Marin, have that discussion of why is this happening? And it's a few lines, but the context it adds to this film is pretty huge. And it does reify, as Andrea was just saying, that religious element. Whereas the original version, the 1973 version, it was much more ambiguous as to why this was happening. So just for a quick timeline of events when we talk about The Exorcist. Now, The Exorcist is sort of kind of based on true events. And these true events happened in Georgetown in 1949 or thereabouts. Blatty read an article which was in the Washington Post, which is still online and we'll link to in the episode notes of this if you are curious. And then he took a while. He did a lot of research. He rewrote the story to kind of get it away from those initial traumatic events, change it up a bit to protect some identities. And then his book came out in 1971. Of course, the film, as we mentioned, came out in 1973. And then the quote-unquote version you've never seen before came out in 2000 and that's become I would say the most popular yeah it's more or less the movie as we know it right now yeah it wasn't actually until a few years ago that I saw the 1973 version and Andrea stop it stop it bad Andrea oh. this is carpeting oh Jesus Andrea get it together sorry okay well if you've gotten that out of your system because no more bathroom breaks we are going to break down William Friedkin's The Exorcist Somewhere between science and superstition, there is another world. The world of darkness. Nobody expected it. Nobody believed it. And nothing could stop it. There are no experts. You probably know as much about possession as most priests. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. Now, I want you to tell me that you know for a fact that there's nothing wrong with my daughter except in her mind. You tell me you know for a fact that an exorcism wouldn't do any good. You tell me that! <laughs> The one hope, the only hope, the exorcist. The film begins in Iraq, where aging priest Father Marin is working on an archaeological dig which uncovers the statue of the demon Pazuzu, who Marin seems to have dealt with before. The story then moves to Washington, D.C., where actress Chris McNeil is shooting a film. Chris begins to hear noises in the attic of the house that she's renting. Soon, her 12-year-old daughter Reagan begins to act strangely. Reagan also starts to talk about her new imaginary friend, Captain Howdy, and her behavior grows increasingly unstable, culminating in Reagan urinating on the carpet during a party. Not unlike Andrea just now. I don't know what you're talking about. Understandably concerned, 
Chris takes Reagan for a series of medical tests where Reagan continues to act out. After exhausting all medical possibilities, Chris approaches a local priest, Father Karras, who is also going through his own crisis of faith after the sudden death of his mother. Karras reluctantly agrees to bring the case to the church, and the church agrees that an exorcism is in order. The church then puts Father Marin in charge, with Karras assisting in the exorcism. The exorcism begins, and the demon possessing Reagan, now, as we kind of know, was named Pazuzu, manipulates Reagan's body further, contorting, changing her visage, and pushing it into the furthest realms of grotesqueness. During the exorcism, Karis becomes visibly shaken after Reagan taunts him using his mother's voice. Dime, why you do this to me? Please, Dimi, I'm afraid. Karis leaves the room to compose himself, and he returns to find Father Marin dead. Karis then attacks Reagan, demanding the demon take him instead. Once the demon has taken him, Karis plunges out the window to his supposed death, which if we've seen Exorcist 3, we know what's happening. The film ends with an epilogue scene, which sees Chris and Reagan moving out of the house, and Reagan back to almost normal. Chris then says she doesn't seem to remember anything, but it is implied that Reagan does remember some of the events. So that's a very general synopsis. There are a lot of little things that we're going to bring up through this conversation, but I think that's a good start to situate us in the timeline of events of this film. That's right. And Alex mentioned the re-release. And the story behind the re-release was that William Friedkin had made his movie and he actually sought the opinion of someone he really respected. And they said, you know what, I think this scene can go. I think this scene can go. I think this scene can go. And Friedkin says that he was kind of pissed off. He was like, you know what, I won an Academy Award. So fuck you. I know how to make a movie. Thank you very much. But he reflected upon this and he cut out all these scenes. He cut about 12 scenes in total for the theatrical version, including the a scene in the doctor's office and the infamous stair crawl, which was actually cut because the strings that were used were clearly visible because of the way it was shot and they were able to include that in the re-release because we had the technological capacity to hide those strings and finally put that out and it's a terrifying scene but there's also a conversation between the priests that was cut out when they're sitting on the steps and that is when Father Karras asks Father Marin you know why this girl why this girl doesn't make sense I think the point is to make us despair. To see ourselves as animal and ugly. To reject the possibility that God could love us. Friedkin thought that the whole movie said that much, so the conversation wasn't really necessary, but for me personally, that conversation was really important, and that just really cemented where the movie stood in the wider debate of what is going on here. And then there is that scene at the very end with Kinderman and Father Dyer, which kind of resumes Kinderman's friendship with Father Karras. You know, Kinderman was trying to get to the bottom of this murder mystery, but he was also trying to make a friend. Yeah, I love to talk, film, discuss, to critique. You want to see a film with me? And I really felt like their attempted friendship was symbolic of a possible reunion of religion and state. So I thought that was pretty important as well. 
Yeah, when I was doing my research for this episode, there is a really great book by Jason Zinneman, and he's a New York Times writer, and it's called Shock Value. And it's kind of about the horror movement within the context of New Hollywood. So it starts with films like The Last House on the Left and goes all the way up to Alien. Now, there's a whole chapter pretty much devoted to The Exorcist, which floats in and out through this story that Jason Zinneman tells. Now, what I found really interesting about this, which I hadn't read before, was that Friedkin was a really, really big fan of a British playwright named Harold Pinter. Now, Pinter was one of the foremost playwrights of the 20th century. He writes very obtuse but non-specific plays. They're very dark, but you don't know that much about what's going on. You only know what you absolutely need to. So a lot of motivations are left out. A lot of setting isn't explained. They're very interesting pieces. So Friedkin ultimately, you know, with the 73 release, removing that scene between Karis and Marin, it stuck more to that Pinter way of doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, if you take out that scene, I do like that scene, but it's more about what you believe if you take that out. In this way, it's a bit more shoehorned. There's still plenty of unsolved mysteries going on in this film. Upon rewatching and then reading about it, I found that there was never really any development about that coin on a gold chain. When Reagan rips it off Father Karras's neck, that's when he's able to take on the demon. So it mm-hmm. was protecting him somehow, and it was kind of knotted at in the beginning scene in Iraq, but we, we never really went there. And then there's also the role of the Ouija board and the whole Captain Howdy incident that was kind of hinted at, and then there's something in the attic, and so we're never really quite sure where the evil comes from. I really love that about this, and your mother sucks cocks in hell, so... What? I- what did you say about my mom? Your mom? Yeah. No, no, no. I was just saying that the film has a lot of unsolved mysteries that's really left up to the viewer to decide. Okay. Are you sure you're okay? We can we can do this another time, Andrew. No, no, no. I feel great. Fine. Okay, great. Well, as we were mentioning earlier, each time we come to this film, I think for both of us, we see something different in it. And for me, you know, obviously we'd known for a little while that we were going to do this episode, and I have a very close friend of mine, and she actually had an exorcism performed on her when she was about nine or ten. Now, she was raised very Catholic, but as I can best describe it, her upbringing sounds way more like Carrie than it does like a more traditional maybe Andrea's Roman Catholic background. Now, my friend told me that when she was a little kid, her mother, and she was raised by a single mother who was also very religious, they would have these prayer circles in the house, and my friend would be upstairs playing or reading books, and she would hear all this shouting, and it was these women in a prayer circle, and they would start shouting, and a priest from, I guess, their congregation had just come back from Europe or overseas, and now he was performing exorcisms in this small town in Canada. And these women all started having exorcisms performed on them. And my friend knew about it because all of a sudden during these prayer meetings, which were usually pretty quiet, she would hear the most insane screaming and swearing. And it would boggle her mind. And then finally something happened. And she's pretty sure what happened was she accidentally broke her mother's sewing scissors. And her mother worked a bit as a seamstress at some point. So she needed those scissors. So her mom... Instead of, you know, punishing her or explaining to her that it's not nice to touch other people's things, decided that, oh, my daughter needs an exorcism now. So my friend was brought down into the prayer group and 
they performed this seemingly sounding basic thing where they just kind of shouted at her and, and made her say prayers. And she said to me when she was telling me about it that she kind of started swearing and she started acting out. And it was this fun free-for-all that she had to just fully express all these terrible thoughts and words she had heard. And then it ended and they were like, you know, now you're better. And she had to go say a few Hail Marys or something. And then that was it. But she was, uh, from my understanding, quite the hellraiser when she was in her teens. So she'd probably do with another one. It's interesting because who was that ceremony for exactly? Like, do you really need to reach out to demonology to explain why your daughter broke your scissors? Well, it's interesting because that's what I was asking her in, in prep for this episode. And she said, you know what? It seemed to me that a lot of these women were quite repressed. They were young wives, young mothers, essentially. And this was the only place where they could rightfully swear up a storm right. and not have to be good and perfect. And it was this strange outlet for them. We kept talking about it. It was a great story. And then I was like, so when you eventually saw The Exorcist, which was probably a few years later, what did you think when you saw it? Was there something that seemed accurate or really off or what? And she was like, the one thing I remember about watching it was that I really loved how much she swore in it. That felt real. Well, you know what they say, la plume de ma tante. No one says that. Like Reagan says that in the movie, but no one else says that. No one says what? Are you sure you're okay? Uh, yeah, I'm fine. I think we need a young priest and an old priest. Speaking of young priest, I thought the character of Father Karras was so interesting. The way he doesn't look like a priest. And Kinderman even calls it. He says... Yeah, it's true. You do look like a boxer. Like John Garfield. In body and soul. Exactly. John Garfield. People tell you that, Father. And I actually remember when I was in high school, we'd always have a school chaplain. We'd have a priest who was on hand, and he would do the masses, and I think he'd do a prayer in the morning announcements or something like that. But when I was in high school, our school chaplain, his name was Father Tim, and he was so badass. He had this face, and you knew he'd seen some shit, right? It was all in his face. He always wore sleeveless shirts, and he was ripped, and he kept barbells and dumbbells in his office. The chapel was always open if you wanted to go in there and hang out. And there was one point in my high school career where my boyfriend had dumped me in for another chick and they were sitting with my friends at the lunchroom. And so I actually had lunch in the chapel for a couple of weeks in high school. I can't even believe I'm admitting Aww. this. But I did. And I developed a bit of a relationship with Father Tim. And I found that he was an amazing listener. You know, he never tried to force any propaganda down my throat. He didn't tell me to say prayers or suck his dick or anything inappropriate like that. It was always, he just listened to me. And so when you've got this figure of Father Karras who is trained in psychology, in the U.S., priests are actually required to have a four-year university degree in philosophy with an additional four to five years graduate-level seminary in theology with a focus on biblical research. And I thought that was really interesting because philosophy to me is about rationalism and about how to argue as opposed to psychology, which is Father Karras's background, and I'd argue the skills displayed by Father Tim in my high school. And so it's interesting to me that you would want your priests to be able to defend rationality when they are agents of faith, which essentially flies in the face of rationality. And I think what this film does so well and why it's so important is that, I mean, the scenes where Reagan goes through those medical tests are 
possibly the most harrowing, like when she gets the spinal tap and like there's blood squirting out of her neck. And it's it's really tough to watch. Even, you know, when you've seen a Serbian film, those scenes are still really hard to watch when it's a young girl being put through all those things. And I think what we see in The Exorcist is that the rational has been explored. Every avenue that rationality could go with it, we can't go any further. So that's why Chris is forced to turn to religion. And even when she does, Karis, as you were saying, is also very skeptical. He's, like, not fully believing. It takes him a long time to get there. Like, I think even when Reagan's head spins around, he's still a little like, I don't know. I need out. I'm unfit. I think I've lost my faith, Tom. Now, what I really love about those scenes in the hospital, in addition to the fact that they're very cold, they're very sterile, they're very painful, and it, it seems very arbitrary to us because nothing's really explained why they would need to do this and why they would need to do that and exactly what they're doing. I don't think Chris even knows exactly what they're doing. But what the film does is it undercuts all these procedures and all these uniforms. There's a hilarious nurse uniform where she's wearing this weird doily on her head. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And then I realized that they were undercutting these sequences in the hospital with church sequences. And what I felt like they were doing is they were showing that these were different sides of the same coin, where there are ceremonies and there is ceremonial garb and there's an air of mystery, but... For some reason, in this day and age, science has all the legitimacy. You know, we feel like they're getting to the truth, whereas the mass is just kind of, you know, silly, hocus-pocus, time-wasting, whatever the fuck. What really stood out for me on this viewing of the film, and again, going back to my friend's experience, so I really watched The Exorcist through Reagan's eyes, or I tried to, up until the point where she was still Reagan. And for me, a really important scene is towards the beginning of the film, and it begins with Chris. And she's on the phone with an operator trying to get to Reagan's father's hotel so that he can wish his daughter a happy birthday. Hello? Yes, this is Mrs. McNeil. Operator, you have got to be kidding. I have been on this line for 20 minutes. Jesus Christ, can you believe this? He doesn't even call his daughter on her birthday, for Christ's sake. Maybe the circuit is busy. Oh, circuit's my ass. He doesn't give a shit. And the camera just very slowly pans back, and it pans back, and we see Chris getting more and more frustrated. She's angry, and she's hurt. And we just see Reagan standing quietly and just listening, absorbing all of this trauma that the adults have. And she's like this sponge for all their shitty emotions. And I think this film does a really subtle but a very interesting job of making Reagan this unknowable force. And it's very important to keep that in mind, especially the way I watched it, because my favorite lines in the film, and because I didn't know you could turn this word into a verb, is, do you know? Do you know what your cunting daughter did? Then the scene ends. And watching it, I was like, no, what did she do? What did she do? I mean, I know she stole a cookie at the beginning of the film, but surely this can't yield all of these emotions. And we don't get a lot from Reagan. We don't get a lot of truth. She is this kind of conduit for everything else. Even in one of her big dialogue scenes with her mother, they're playing with a Ouija board, and she's just saying what Captain Howdy is saying or reiterating, you know, what his intentions are or aren't. You really don't want me to play, huh? No, I do. Captain Howdy said no. Captain who? Captain Howdy. Who's Captain Howdy? You know, I make the questions and he does the answers. Oh, Captain 
I found it pretty interesting that the original instance of exorcism upon which the book was based was actually perpetrated on a young boy. So the decision to make Reagan a female, even though it was based on this true story, was made by William Peter Blatty, who also wrote the screenplay, which is why the film is very faithful to the original source material, with the exception of the scenes that were cut out. Even still, Reagan's body is the site of so much horror her body is mutilated, and I couldn't really imagine it having the same impact if Reagan had been a young boy. Yeah, I think even some of the stuff I still flinch at is, you know, with uh, when she's stabbing herself with the cross, and it's very graphic, and the stuff she's saying, it's, it's really scary, especially when you think of a young girl, and it's like we are, as a society, taught to protect the young girls, yeah. and it's cool if, like, boys go off and date, but girls, it's like, no, you have to be good and pure, and without her knowing it, Reagan has become unpure. It is incredible that they allowed that scene in. I, I still can't believe it to this day. Nothing like that would ever get past the censors. Well, especially if you think of, you know, the Hayes Code or the Production Code, which ended in 1968. And the other film that's kind of mentioned as a precursor to The Exorcist is something like Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby. And that was made in 1968. And that's a pretty tame film content-wise, which we've already talked about on this podcast. Then, you know, like a scant five years later, we've got a little girl stabbing her crotch with a crucifix. Yeah. She's very much stabbing herself with the crucifix. Sometimes I read in reviews that she's masturbating with a crucifix. And I don't know how you people masturbate, but I'm pretty sure the definition of masturbation is pleasure. Although, you know, self-abuse is kind of thrown around as well. So Reagan's relationship with her mother is complicated by the fact that this is the 70s. Her mother is a famous actress. She's working very hard. She's making a career. She's a single mom. And while she seems very attentive to Reagan, you also get the sense that she works very hard. So when she does spend time with Reagan, she kind of overcompensates. It's just kind of like, okay, I've got an hour with you on Sunday. Let's do everything in life. And I'm just going to throw money at you. And it's not an indictment of Chris. She's obviously an excellent mother. She's willing to do absolutely anything to save her daughter. But I do feel like the film is implicating something about the state of culture such that a single mom has to work that hard and it has to come at the expense of her relationship with her daughter. And that intergenerational divide is also apparent in the story of Father Karras and his mother, which is a subplot that Alex mentioned in the synopsis. Basically, his mother is living in a rundown dump in New York City, and he commutes to visit her, but when he gets there, he finds that, you know, she's going up and down these stairs, she's got a bad leg, she got a visit from her brother over a month ago or something like that. She's not being taken care of, and she refuses to leave her home, and so Father Karras is racked with guilt when she does finally end up in a psychiatric ward, only to return home and die alone. And it's something that he's having to carry with him. So I feel like this is a snapshot of the 70s and about where society is vis-a-vis dealing with your parents. Oh, Christ. I should have been there. I wasn't there. I should have been there. There was nothing you could do. 
there's a really famous general horror scholarship article, and that's uh, Horror and the Monstrous Feminine by Barbara Creed. Now, she mentions several movies in this paper, and in the context of The Exorcist, she mentions a bit what Andrew was just talking about, how it takes the kind of forming of a nuclear family with these priest figures becoming a father-like figure. There is this empty male place in Chris and Reagan's life, and they subsume it they take it on and only when they actually kind of come together and Karis is willing to sacrifice himself for this daughter that's not his that's when everything can be resolved I think that is an interesting thing when you look at this time period of you know the fracturing of the nuclear family this is you know the 70s and you're coming off of the Charles Manson murders and you know you've got Vietnam and you know Nixon it's a real time of instability and I think inadvertently maybe the exorcist does speak to that role of the family and having those protections in place having that stability and having that circle around you that will protect you no that's right and as i mentioned before william peter blatty is very transparent in his agenda that society needs faith again and it needs it now because we've got jfk being assassinated political hope is eradicated we've got the war we've got increasing globalization increasing knowledge of all the horrors of the world and it's a lot for people to bear i'd also like to bring up the backdrop of iraq as the site where the movie opens the wash and the colors and the sounds are very disorienting. You know, this is far, far away. In fact, if you have any access to the Blu-ray where there's behind-the-scenes talks with the director, he did not expect to be able to get into Iraq to film this sequence. Relations with the U.S. weren't good. He had to give the embassy a couple of goodies in order to get in there, including a reel of his Oscar-winning movie, The French Connection. But In this opening sequence, you have this archaeological dig, all these sounds, all this dust flying, all this heat. It looks like a very oppressive environment, but with Father Marin there, and particularly when he is standing and his silhouette is shown and he's standing in opposition to the statue, and it's almost a very gunslinger moment where it's just the two of them and it's foreshadowing everything. But what was moving to me about that sequence is it just solidifies that... A lot of the major religions practiced in the world are Abrahamic religions, like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam originated essentially from the same origin stories that took place over there. So as remote as we feel from Iraq, a lot of these belief systems trickle down, and even the most secular people still tend to have a belief in good and evil and heaven and hell, and that seems to be one of the most pervasive things about a religion, and they all came from the same place. Yeah, and for me, again, as not raised in religion, but for me, what this film does ultimately is it, I feel like this film could have, you know, happened within the Jewish religion or within Islam, but obviously with different actors maybe, but it has more to do with faith and the faith of belief in something more powerful and more good that we are all called upon to do in some way. It didn't feel to me like Christian propaganda. I think it has more to do with the great, awesome, powerful side of faith, which is ultimately about being good and trying to do good things. Well, that's right. I mean, it's impossible to film goodness, really. And if it were possible, we probably wouldn't watch it because we would find it boring. Evil is so much more interesting, and it's really interesting in this film. It's displayed in such gory, graphic, visual, visceral detail. What you have is a story that 
shows such evil and suggests the presence of a counterpart of such evil, which is kind of a real cool way of going about it. So one element of this film that we haven't fully gotten into quite yet, but we have mentioned it, is the murder mystery. So this murder mystery happens almost about halfway through the film, I would say. It's when Reagan is starting to really be in the full throes of this possession, and Chris is worried they're undergoing the medical tests. It's not helping, and she's out to try to figure out what to do with her daughter and try to save her. And they've got this kind of housekeeper or a nanny that's staying with them. Chris comes home, the nanny's just getting home, and they're like, oh my God, where? who was with Reagan? And it's this man, Burke Dennings, who was the director on the film Chris has been shooting. And the nanny says, oh, he was just going to watch her. And then all of a sudden, another man enters the house and says, oh, you didn't hear. Burke's dead. He must have been drunk. He fell down from the top of the steps right outside. By the time he hit M Street, he broke his neck. So Burke Dennings has wound up falling down the concrete staircase, apparently having thrown himself out of a window or fallen down drunk. There's something very wrong about this situation. So that's when Lieutenant Kinderman arrives on the scene. And he's a very nice detective. This is the nicest detective I've ever seen in a film. He knows something's up. He's not quite sure, but he's treading very carefully. He seems like a really sweet guy, and it's nice to have that in the film because it's not some man, not some force of authority coming in and yelling at Chris, demanding information. He actually seems quite respectful of something that could be ruled an accident, but he has a suspicion that there's something more, and I think he knows he won't get it going down the hard and narrow route. Yeah, I totally. And I think that murder mystery is really interesting for a couple of reasons. For one, you've got the scene where Chris is having a party, and Burke Dennings is there, and he gets wasted, and they're all like, oh, Burke. So you get the sense that he's a drinker. So maybe he was drunk, and he just fell down the fucking stairs. However, he has a tiff with the housekeeper. He picks a fight with Carl and calls him a Nazi, and they actually fight to the point that Carl attacks him, but that fight never comes up in Kinderman's investigation, even though that would kind of seem to be a bit of a motive, maybe? Nobody likes being called a Nazi. So there's that. I also like how Kinderman seems to drop it. At the end, when everything is said and done, he seems to sense that there is something at play here that the legal system can't touch and that, you know what, she's okay, rightness seems to be restored, and it seems like the death of Father Karras took the heat off. And I think it's also important to note, and this is, again, something that really interested me in this viewing of it, that we don't see Burke Denning's death, we don't see Father Marin's death, but I think from everything we've kind of been able to watch as an audience, I think most people assume... Reagan had something to do with it, or the demon within Reagan caused it to happen. Now, it's just interesting to me that Freakin still pulls away from those moments. We don't ever get to see Reagan do anything truly evil. You know, she pees on a carpet, maybe ruins it. She does this cool walk down a staircase. She swears up a storm, but, like, what has she really done? Yeah, and I found it really heartbreaking how slowly that realization came to Chris I, I think, like any mother of someone who does something horrible, there's an aspect of denial. They're like, she couldn't possibly have anything to do with it. She couldn't possibly. She couldn't possibly. And then as things progressively get worse, and she says, there is nothing in my daughter in there. You show me Reagan's double. Same face, same voice, everything. And I know it wasn't Reagan. 
I'd know in my gut. I'm telling you that that thing upstairs isn't my daughter. She finally is able to admit to herself, and she does so in admitting she killed Burke Dennings. She says it, and you can just see the weight of that on her. And now speaking of Chris within this context, I do really want to mention and talk a bit more about her role as an actress. We get early on a scene of her shooting this semi-large-scale film scene outside of school, and she's trying to stop these student protesters. And it's actually very funny because you get the sense that she's in a shitty movie because she's asking why she's doing something, and they can't tell her. It actually reminded me a little bit of Guy from Rosemary's Baby, who just does terrible things. Yeah. And again, that scene's really nice because it links these characters together in a world outside of this possession. So we have a nice little shot of Karis. He's stopped by. He's with this crowd. He's just watching the film scene taking place. He's laughing along because it's very light. It's it's actually a very nice moment in mm -hmm. this middle of this dark film. You know, there's a lot of talk of films and being fans of films. Mm -hmm. Kinderman is a huge part of that. And another very interesting moment to me was after he's done interviewing Chris, you know, the first time about Denning's death, and he, he's a little embarrassed and then asks. I, I really hate to ask you this, but for, for my daughter, could you please give an autograph? Of course. Um, and what's your name? I lied. It's for me. And it's just so interesting to me because I was thinking about all the other films that we have these days about exorcism. Seems like we get a couple a year, everything from like The Last Exorcism to The Devil Inside and, and all these crazy things that we're watching. And they are so centered on this exorcism. It goes from the moment a person is possessed to the crazy exorcism to people believing to everything happening. And it's so centered on it. But I think The Exorcist works because it expands this story into a world outside of The Exorcism. So in the middle of like us all in the audience going, oh, fuck, this girl is possessed. Chris is heartbroken. Now she's murdering people. Like, what the hell is going on? And someone asks for her autograph. Yeah. The lieutenant asks for her autograph. To me, I see it as, you know, Freakin' and Blatty both saying that film is a hugely important part of our culture. But it's also maybe a false idol. I mean, who knows? But it is a part of this culture that is constantly watching itself and wanting to tell its own stories. Yeah, it almost breaks the fourth wall a little bit. Like, it's a movie within a movie, which we don't get to see too, too much. I really enjoy how this film introduces the characters and how they kind of wind into each other's lives in roundabout ways. You know, you've got Father Karras observing that scene and having a chuckle at seeing Chris and Burke hug it out. And then Chris, when she's walking through the neighborhood in the autumn and the Tubular Bells soundtrack is going, and I got huge shades of Halloween from that scene, by the way, just when she's walking along and the music's going and the wind is billowing these leaves around, and I think John Carpenter just took a little note right there. Well, and even going from, you know, your earlier comment of the costuming and the ceremony of 
the medical tests, you know, I thought it was interesting that Chris passes those kids in costumes where we have that moment of, okay, it's Halloween, it's around Halloween time. And then moments later, she passes these nuns and the wind blows and their habits go kind of like all up in the air, billowing, and it's like another essence of a costume. Right. And then she sees Father Karras having a what looks like a heated discussion with Father Dyer, and she's kind of fascinated. And then she asks Dyer about that later on, about who was that priest? And then Kinderman also has instances of observing people, and then later on they're talking. So it almost seems that their fates are intertwined. They weren't Mm -hmm. brought together because of this situation. They were brought together for a bigger, wider, more mystical reason. And I think that's absolutely to your point of the fact, you know, when Kinderman walks away with Dyer, and it is, like, they understand that something has happened and that they all have to walk away from it now. And I think the sense that when Reagan kisses Dyer at the end of the film, just like a hug and a kiss, that's why I say that it's implied that she remembers something. You know, she had no attachment to religion before, but she recognizes that this deserves something. This deserves some kind of attention. Yeah, someone somewhere did me a huge solid. Yeah. I also really enjoyed a couple of exchanges that Kinderman had with Father Karras, and then he has a very similar one with Father Dyer later, where he's like, do you want to go see a movie with me? In the first instance, it's Othello, and the second, it's Wuthering Heights. He's like, you want to come see it with me? And the priest will be like, I don't know, who's in it? And Kinderman will rattle off these huge Hollywood names, and the priest will say, I've seen it. And the fact that that comes up, it comes up twice if you've seen the extended version. In the original theatrical version, the epilogue with Father Dyer and Kinderman was actually cut out. But the fact that he has this conversation twice, to me, really spoke to, you know, I've seen it. This is the classic tale of good versus evil. It happens in every movie. It happens in every story. The greatest story ever told is good triumphing over evil, which is exactly what The Exorcist is. It's just a modern retelling of a tale that's old as time. Mm-hmm. In fact, I got a pass to the crest tomorrow night. Would you like to go? What's playing? Wuthering Heights. Who's in it? Heathcliff, Jackie Gleason, and in the role of Catherine Earnshaw, Lucille Ball. I've seen it. So, having talked about the gummy, what? Give me what? Andrea, my name's Alex. Oh, yeah, no, I know. Okay. Are you sure? Do you need anything? Nope. I'm good. Do you want another blanket? As I was saying, when we talk about the film, you know, we've talked about the content, the meat and potatoes of this film, and I don't think you can talk about The Exorcist without talking about the cultural impact. And I mentioned it off the top, but this film was was a cultural event more so than any other horror movie that had ever really come before it. There are lineups around the block. People were freaking out. There's a whole cultural history of The Exorcist, which you can't escape when you talk about it. And I think when Andrea and I talk about the film, and hopefully you get the same sense too, is that it's a film about goodness and not about a right or a wrong, but trying to do the best at every moment. And it's about kind people doing the best they can and trying to right the wrongs that they've encountered. And I think, you know, that's a great way to look at religion, but you see a lot of people who practice religion getting very invested in the outcome of this film. And so there were protesters and religious groups protesting the film. There were people fainting, vomiting, going crazy as they watched it, going to see it multiple times. When I was actually doing my master's, I came across and I was doing one of my big papers about the use of the real in horror films. And I talked a bit about The Exorcist. 
because it is supposed to be based on true events. And there is a man, I believe it was in California, and he'd gone to see the movie. And he became so warped and concerned and, and riled up while watching this film that he actually hurled himself from his seat at the screen, like physically threw his body at the screen to, quote unquote, get at the demon. Like he thought the demon was in the screen and if he launched himself at it, he would like get it. He didn't get it. He did break his arm. And that was another thing that this film really hyped up and almost in the tradition of a William Castle film like they had ambulances waiting outside they had people ready to deal with every matter of human craziness that would happen if you watch this film that's right and I think that's the backdrop that made it such a sleepover film for my generation was that it was a dare mm-hmm. was that audiences back in the day would stand in line for four hours to get into the film only to chicken out within the first 20 minutes either by fainting or by gagging or just GTFO piecing out of the theater. And so it it became a dare. Can you handle it? Can you sit through it? Can you deal with it? That's how shocking this film was. And no film in the history of cinema ever since has had quite that impact. And I think it's also important to note the kind of folklore of the actual filming of The Exorcist. There were a lot of reports of it was a cursed set, it was a haunted set, people died, you know, after shooting it. There was a lot of hype around Linda Blair having done everything, quote unquote everything, that everything Reagan did in this film came through this very talented 12-year-old girl. And not to take anything away from Linda Blair, she's terrific in the film, but it took a couple lawsuits to get Mercedes McCambridge credited properly in the film as doing the voice of Reagan when she's possessed. Also, they tried to kind of hide or not really deal with the actress Eileen Dietz, who was Reagan's body double, and she did a lot of stunts. The scene where Reagan slaps Chris, that's Eileen Dietz. There's actually a great interview with Eileen Dietz about this on the podcast, I Was There Too, which we will link in the episode notes. Hello, Linda. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? How's the head? All right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) No horns? No horns. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone's just joined us, this is Linda Blair, who is the star of perhaps the most controversial film around at the moment, a film called The Exorcist. Linda plays a girl called Regan, a 12-year-old girl who is exorcised. How old are you, really? Fifteen. And when you made the film? I was 13. She sincerely believes that she hasn't been scarred by the things she had to do in the film. It's the grisly business of stardom which seems more likely permanently to disfigure her. Friedkin was famously hard on this cast. He tortured them. He wanted their pain and suffering to be palpable, so he just tortured them on set. There were rumors that he would shoot a gun just to startle somebody. He slapped a priest in the face to elicit the proper solemn expression after the fact. Apparently he jerked Helen Burstyn so hard that he actually caused permanent damage to her back in one of the scenes where she goes flying and she was actually pretty pissed off that her real scream of pain wound up used in the film. And it's also important to note that this film was a huge success critically, one of the few horror films to be recognized by the Academy. It won several Academy Awards, including Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound, as well as Best Actress nomination for Ellen Burstyn, Best Supporting Actress nomination for Linda Blair, and Best Supporting Actor for Jason Miller, who played Father Karras. And for a horror movie, that's a pretty huge nod. 
I think that's why partially this film is so beloved and it, you know, it really irks me that the people involved with this film haven't come out and embraced it as a horror film. They keep saying it's a thriller, it's a religious thriller, and it's, yes, it can be those things. It's also a horror movie, especially, Linda Blair, when you're making money coming to horror conventions. Oh, ho, burn. That isn't very nice. But I think there is, you know, I don't know if any other horror fans have had this where, you know, people will say, oh, I'm not a horror fan, but I love The Exorcist. And it's like, well, then you are a horror fan. Welcome. Welcome. It's awesome. Yeah, it's not that bad in here. Why do you deny us? Join us. What? Oh, Andrea, did you get a new tattoo or what is that? Oh, that's it just why does it say help me? That just kind of popped up overnight. Hmm. Here, I can make it go down. Oh, God. What? Oh, it's cool. So, yes, as I mentioned, some people have thought there's something cursed or haunted about this film. And I didn't believe it. Or I used to not believe it. And as I've said, usually I would consider myself an atheist. But I've had a couple of experiences, both to do with this film, that I'm like, oh, now I don't know. So to go to the most recent one, last week when I was prepping for this episode, I have bookshelf in my bedroom and it has all of my horror and film and theory books and I tend to when I'm prepping pull them all down sit them on my bed and start index and then find the relevant chapters and read and go from there so I pull down a probably about five books which I was pretty sure had something to do with the exorcist what I did was I went to the index found the exorcist and each time I then opened the book it flipped to that page the exact page where The Exorcist started. Mm. Four out of five books. Wow. So I, I it, but these books are all newer, so I wasn't using them in my master's. They're all newer. I had no reason to turn to these pages before. That's spooky. Well, and then there's a few years ago, I was dating this guy, and I was just getting into horror journalism at this time, and he was super supportive. He's such a great guy, and so we'd always watch a lot of horror movies together, and he was also raised in kind of a religious background, and he had this VHS copy of The Exorcist, and I was like, oh, you've got that, and he was like, yeah, it's a weird copy, and I was like, why is it a weird copy? He was like, oh, it's like haunted, and I was like, okay. And then one night, I think it was around this time of year, in October a few years ago, we were hanging out, and he was like, oh, let's just watch it. We hadn't seen The Exorcist in a really long time. So we put it on, and he tells me before he starts it, he's like, something weird will happen when we watch this tape. And I was like, this isn't The Ring. Calm down. (laughs) And so we watch it. Great movie. We talk afterwards, and we're talking about our movie and, and what we both think of it. And then we go to bed, and nothing happens. Nothing happens. And I was like, babe, I don't think your tape's haunted. And then the next day I was at work and I put my cell phone in my desk and I was working away, doing things. And then I came back, I don't know, an hour later and I saw that I had a voicemail and I pick up the voicemail and there's no caller ID on it. There's no number listed. And I start listening to this message and I swear to God that it just sounded like something being dragged over like gravel. Wow. And it went on for like a minute and I can't remember the last time I was that scared. So easy. Beware of haunted exorcist VHS tapes, guys. I didn't have any experiences like that. Although, this morning I vomited about a quart of this hot, steamy green stuff. It was the craziest thing. I think I might be coming down with something after all. Do you want to get some... Do you want to go to the doctor? Allez-vous français? Actually, you know what, Andrea? Just to, um, you know, make make sure we're both okay. 
because you know weird shit happens when you watch The Exorcist or when you talk about The Exorcist or when you listen to people talking about The Exorcist. And I really care about our listeners, so maybe if we just want to play a chunk of Father Marin doing some recitations, like Paracrite compels you, and maybe we'll all be good. Uh, I don't know. Come on. I feel a bit weird about that. The power of Christ compels you, Andrea. Burns! It burns! How do you feel? Or do you feel good? Yeah. Yeah, you feel better? I feel much better. Yeah. Yeah? Refreshed. Yeah. I'm going to have to hose you off, though. <laughs> you just peed and vomited all over yourself for the last hour. So that's our episode on The Exorcist, folks. I hope we did it justice. It was hard. It's daunting. We love this film. I love just about everything about it, and I could talk about it for ages. But that's all we've got for this month. Next month, we have a great episode planned. We're really excited about November. We have decided to bring on a guest, something we don't do very often at the Faculty of Horror, but we wanted to do an episode on a very Canadian film, and so we consulted someone who we would consider to be an expert on the topic. So our guest for next episode is going to be Paul Korup. He's Andrea's co-curator at the Black Museum here in Toronto. He runs the Canucksploitation website. I interviewed him for an article for Famous Monsters of Filmland about Black Christmas. Like, if you want to talk about Canadian horror films properly, you talk to Paul Korup. So we're very excited, very glad that he agreed to come on and explain David Cronenberg to us and what it is to talk about shivers that's right we pitched it to him we said we'd like you to be a guest on the show and we'd like you to pick your favorite cronenberg film and he thought about that he chewed on it a little bit and he picked shivers so that is the topic for our next episode and it's going to be a good one so be sure to tune in for that also we've been very very busy this month anyone working in horrors having a crazy fucked up month and probably won't sleep well until november 1st but that's fine not complaining I'm happy to announce that I was a guest narrator on the Pseudopod earlier this month. I got to read a story called Darwinism by Rachel Vercade, and it was a really creepy little monologue that I had a lot of fun narrating, and, you know, they cut it together and did that magic that I do to the Faculty of Horror, so it was really cool to see someone else do that on me. And you can catch that episode on their website. We'll link to it in the Faculty of Horror website. And check that out if you need a chilling little story this Halloween season. So thank you again so much for listening. Please let us know what you think of this episode. And if you like this episode and you like our podcast, please consider writing us a review on iTunes in your home country. It's a really big help to us and it doesn't take too much time, we hope. So thank you again for listening. Have a very happy and very safe Halloween. And until next time, parlez-vous français? Office hours are closed. <laughs>